Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. NCC President Jeffrey Rosen sat down this week with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, America's first female Secretary of State. Secretary Albright shared her experience as a woman in leadership, what the Constitution means to her, and why she says she's a grateful American. She also shared stories from her new book, Hell and Other Destinations. This conversation was part of our year-long Women in the Constitution initiative, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Please join me in welcoming Secretary Albright. And Secretary, thank you so much for joining. It's, it's great to be with you, Jeff. And thank you for telling everybody who I am, because not everybody always knows. Well, that's not true at all. I was coming back from China. And Chicago was the first port of entry, and I was there getting undressed for the security people. And um, I put my stuff on the conveyor belt, and the lady behind me said, where'd you get all those screw-top bottles? My bottles all leak. And I said, well, at the container store. And then I was going through the magnetometer, and the TSA guard looked at me, and he said, oh, my God, it's you. (laughs) I'm Bosnia, and we all love you in Bosnia. And if it weren't for you, there wouldn't be a Bosnia. And you're always welcome in Bosnia. And can I have my picture taken with you? So we took a picture and I went back to get my stuff. And the lady of the screw top bottle said, so what exactly happened here? And I said, well, I used to be secretary of state. And she said, of Bosnia? So thank you for sorting that out. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. A great pleasure. That's a great story. Before we begin, I have to ask you about your pin. You famously wear pins to symbolize the events that you're speaking at. What pin are you wearing today? Well, I'm wearing two, and the first one, the white one, is the opening of the co- We the People. Uh, it's my Constitution pin. Great. And then I have uh, four women standing there next to it. So I thought that that would work. That's just beautiful. Thank you for both of those pins. Are there any women in particular you want to tell us about? No, I mean, just generally, I think women holding hands and marching together, which seems very appropriate. So um, Anyway, I'm glad you asked, uh, because the whole story of my pins is kind of fun, so. Wonderful. Women holding hands and marching together is a very galvanizing and powerful image, and it can frame our conversation. So let's begin by talking about women and leadership. You were recently interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine about your book and your thoughts on the corona crisis, and you said, what is so interesting now is that countries that have managed to have some kind of control over the virus are the countries run by women. That's what's so fascinating. Tell us more about that and why you think that is. Well, it's, it's very interesting because New Zealand and Taiwan and Finland, Germany, Denmark, Norway and Iceland have been able to get the best control over the virus. And so I was asked about what made the difference. And first of all, I do think there are a number of aspects to it. I do think that women, as they rise through the ranks to uh, higher and higher jobs, are uh, more concerned about uh, doing a good job, being dependable, working with other people. I have to say that some men, in order to get ahead, uh, become, (coughs) excuse me, very egotistical and are very concerned um, and tell everybody how wonderful they are. So I think getting there has something to do with it. Then I do think that women, as a result of our lives in a number of different places um, and jobs, are uh, very good at multitasking. Uh, I do think that is absolutely true uh, in so many ways. And that, I think, gives us the capability of having peripheral vision, of seeing things in a larger scope. 
uh, this is a gross generalization, but basically men, I think, are better at looking at one subject very deeply, but women are really good at the multitasking. Then I do think that um, for the most part, um, women are able to make decisions based on facts and science. And then I also think that as um, caregivers and also mothers in many cases, um, they don't want their children to fight. They don't pit the boys against the girls or some against another. And so those are the kind of characteristics that are necessary for solving problems. And I think it's just fascinating. I mean, I didn't make up the list. I, uh, I, it's a, a basic fact. And I do think it's an interesting list in terms of the variety of countries. And, but the thing they have in common is that they're run by women. Absolutely fascinating. And those traits you identified being less ego-based, more data-driven, more willing to collaborate and not fight are really important characteristics. Let's talk more about women in leadership. You note in your book that most of the recent past secretaries of state have been women. You were the first, a trailblazer. And in fact, I think a young acquaintance of yours assumed that you had to be a woman to be secretary of state. Are women especially good at that position? Well, it was actually my granddaughter who 10 years ago said, so what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? Only girls are Secretary of State. But the truth is that um, when uh, I was named, people thought that a woman couldn't be Secretary of State. And we can get into that. But I do think that one of the aspects of foreign policy, national security policy, I think is the capability of, uh, as a diplomat, to be able to put yourself into the other uh, country's shoes, into what is the person across the table trying to get? Uh, how are your uh, possibilities of, of having some kind of an agreement? What, what do we have in common? What are the problems they're trying to solve? And I think that women are pretty good about that in terms of uh, having empathy and being able to, to do that. Um, it hasn't, it, I can't say, it seemed very natural when my, I was first named. In fact, there were those, um, I, I, I don't know if you want me now to kind of go into the chronology, but Please. the thing that happened was I was ambassador to the United Nations uh, and a cabinet member at that time. Uh, Secretary of State Christopher had made clear that he wasn't going to stay for a second term. Um, and so the period of the great mentioning began uh, and my name was out there. And so there all of a sudden what started going around was a woman couldn't be secretary of state because Arab leaders would not deal with a woman. So then what happened was because uh, I uh, had done a lot of work at the UN, the Arab ambassadors put out a statement saying, we've had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problems dealing with Secretary Albright. So then sometime later, somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, said, yes, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. Uh, and so there were a lot of other things during this period of great mentioning, but people did not think it was possible for a woman to be Secretary of State. And here uh, there are now um, are some people who think it's not possible for certain men to be Secretaries of State. Did you have moments early in your tenure where you experienced gender discrimination as, a, as the first woman Secretary of State? Well, it's interesting. I actually didn't from foreign leaders. Um, it, I did arrive in a large plane that said United States of America, and, and I, they knew that I was there representing my country. Um, and I, I didn't particularly have any 
of, of those kind of gender discriminations. There were certainly issues in terms of disagreeing on issues. The truth is, I had more problems with the men in our own government. And partially because I had lived in Washington a long time. Um, I had, had been a friend of their wife's. They'd come for dinner at my house where I would either put on the plates or remove them. Um, and, uh, or I then became a staffer on Capitol Hill, made a lot of coffee and Xeroxed and, uh, you know, had, uh, some lower level jobs. And, and then when I become secretary of state, I could tell that some of them thought, how did she get to be secretary of state when I should be secretary of state? So it was harder, I think, uh, with some of my male colleagues. You talk about some of the clashes you had in the white house with, Sandy Berger and others, and you all lost your temper. You tell a very amusing anecdote, which you may or may not want to share, uh, but you say that it convinced you of the importance of overcoming anger. And then you recall the words of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who said, when you write your memoir, Madeline, don't be angry. Right. Well, I do think that one of the hard parts, and, and I think that um, women um, that are in our audience will uh, understand this and uh, have, it is not easy to be the only woman in the room. Um, and I think everybody has experienced, every woman has experienced this. You think you're going to say something and then you think, well, they'll think it's stupid and you don't say it. And then some man says it and everybody thinks it's brilliant and you're really mad at yourself. For a long time in the decision-making process in Washington, I was the only woman in the room. Um, and it wasn't easy. And I did, when I, for instance, wanted to um, get some solutions to the problems in Bosnia uh, in terms of ethnic cleansing, uh, and I thought the time had come for us to use troops, uh, I was told, don't be so emotional, Madeline. Um, and as a genuine put down, I think every woman has had that feeling. And so I did learn to argue in a way that I thought uh, might be more persuasive than getting mad. Uh, and then I have to say, I know it's always showing off to say that I was a friend of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but we were in Cartagena um, walking around and he was telling me where all the places in love and the time of cholera were. And then he said, are you going to write a memoir? And I said, yes, I will. And he specifically said, don't be angry when you write your memoir. So I tried very hard not to be angry and still kind of get a few of my points across. Well, you did that extremely well. And I was struck both by the equanimity of the book and also by something that you told the Wall Street Journal in talking about it. You said, I think I've learned to try to deal with things I can control. And when you don't have control of the events themselves, control yourself and try to figure out a solution and how you're going to behave. It's remarkable wisdom. It reminded me of the Stoics of Marcus Aurelius. And I wondered what were the intellectual or spiritual inspirations that drove you to that great wisdom? Well, I could say Marcus Aurelius, but that would be not telling the truth. I'll tell you, what I do write in this book is a little bit about um, having experienced World War II in London with my parents. I was just a little girl, but my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat and uh, didn't wanted to be with the government in exile. So we were in London all through the Blitz. Uh, and uh, what I remember was spending the time in air raid shelters or um, uh, at the beginning in the cellar of the apartment house we lived in in London. By the way, it was on Notting Hill Gate before it got fancy. Uh, and I thought about my, I've, in writing about the experience, I thought about my parents 
who had come from Czechoslovakia. My father spoke English, but my mother didn't, and they must have felt isolated, and they had no control over where the bombs fell. The only thing they did have control over was how they behaved. And so I kind of grew up with the whole thing about your behavior and how you react to something um, is the way that you can play a part over things that you can't control. And it was true many times when I was in the government, and it certainly is true now in terms of how we react to um, the pandemic. Uh, we didn't, you know, we weren't in control in terms of how this virus got started, but our behavior is something that is absolutely essential now. So that's kind of, uh, Marcus Aurelius was right. Absolutely fascinating. Tell us about the influence of your faith on this conception too. You say that you had one advantage, you were raised a Roman Catholic, became an Episcopalian upon marriage, and later discovered my family's heritage is Jewish. Interfaith dialogue comes naturally. All I have to do, you say, is sit in a corner and talk to myself, which is a wonderful line. But yeah. I wonder um, to what degree did your spiritual upbringing shape your sense of the need to control your thoughts and behavior? Well, it's uh, the, the story, you know, I, I actually was pretty religious as a child. I did uh, play being priest. I had an altar uh, in my room and um, and I am, you know, I'm a religious person. And But um, I do think the following thing, um, people ask me a lot, especially about uh, discovering my Jewish background. And what happened, frankly, is that when uh, I was at the United Nations and my name began to be in the newspapers, I started getting letters from people who would say that they either were family or knew my family, um, but the dates were wrong. There was this one I remember of this man who said, I went to high school with your father in 1915, which would have been impossible since my father was born in 1909. Uh, most of them were written in Czech. Uh, and they would say, I'm a relative or I need a visa. And so, um, and occasionally one would say something about uh, that my family was Jewish, but I, I didn't pay much attention since everything in the rest of it was wrong. And then all of a sudden in 96, I got a letter from somebody that had all the villages right and the dates right and a variety of facts saying my family knew your family and you were a fine Jewish family. And so I obviously talked to my daughters about all of this. And uh, they had always thought that my parents were fascinating and, um, and my youngest daughter's married to a Jewish man. And, and so it was all very interesting. And then what happened is, I think you probably know this, but you can't talk to the press uh, between the time that you're named and the time that you're confirmed. Um, but Michael Dobbs from the Washington Post wanted to write a profile of me so my office gave him names of people to talk to um, in the U.S. and in Europe. And um, three days after I was confirmed, he came to my office, uh, here I am, Secretary of State, um, and starts handing me these disgusting index cards. Uh, the Nazis were very good about keeping records with names of my family and uh, where they had been sent to concentration camps. So it's one thing to find out you're Jewish. It's another to find out that you had members of your family that died in the Holocaust. And I knew all about the Holocaust. I just had never uh, linked it to my own family. And so because I had to prove a woman could be Secretary of State, I couldn't just pick up and go find out what was going on or what had gone on. So I asked my brother and sister uh, to, to go to the Czech Republic. And 
try to figure it out. And they did. And so uh, over the years, we found out what, how much the Holocaust had affected our lives. And three years ago, I took my children and grandchildren to Prague and then to Terezine. And we dedicated a plaque to the 26 members of my family uh, that died in the Holocaust. And um, it's a, you know, my parents were dead by then. And I have no idea, you know, why I didn't know about it. A lot of people were very critical, thought I was stupid that I hadn't asked. Um, And I asked people to kind of put themselves into my shoes, which is if you have a story that makes sense, why would you ask questions? And it turns out, um, not long ago, I was getting my uh, uh, an honorary degree from Princeton, and I was up there the day before for a dinner, and I'm sitting with the president of Princeton, and he said, everybody wondered why you didn't tell the truth and why you didn't, and I thought, oh, you know, did I come up here to have this discussion? Uh, and then he finishes by saying, I didn't believe you until I found out I had the same story. And so there are quite a few people that did, um, and... Uh, and I think that it's important to find out what you can. Uh, but and, and I'm sometimes asked how it affected my policies. It didn't. I just knew about the Holocaust. As I said, I didn't know it applied to my family, but it had a lot to do with the kinds of things that I wanted to do to stop ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. It's an extraordinary story. It's so moving to hear you describe it, and it's so moving to read uh, the appendix that you print at the end of your book from your grandmother, who's describing her days right before being deported to Terezin and the camps. And among the other things in this extraordinary document is the following passage. I realize that we live in strange times and are viewed by some members of of a less valuable race, Of course, blacks are also underrated, and yet the world is quiet about that, even Jews. When God enlightens our brains and we understand that we are all equal before God, it will be better. I do not hope that Jews can be recognized while other people are underestimated because of their race. Maybe this big war will bring justice. Can you can you tell us about your reflections on that passages and on that remarkable? Let me say how this how I found this all. What happened was that my father died and had a lot of papers and things. And my mother moved to Washington and brought everything with her. Um, And then she died. And all of a sudden I had all these things um, in my basement and garage. And then uh, I become a public official and the the security people move in. And um, I had not wanted to go through some of my father's stuff because he was writing a book um, that my mother thought I should finish and I never did. Uh, But Uh, So everything goes into storage. And so in 2014, I I, uh, had to find something and I go to this storage place and I'm going through a variety of boxes. um, And all of a sudden I find this manila envelope and inside it is this diary. And it just blew my mind. I was trying to figure out how and where it had come from. I don't ever remember my mother saying that she'd gotten it. Um, and so I started translating it and it, it is hard to even describe because it's written in such a way where there are lots of kind of day to day stories about what it was like for her to have stayed in Czechoslovakia in the small town. It was addressed to my mother. We were in England at the time and she tells about her daily life. She asks, she made a lot of comments about me and was the, how cute I was and what was I talking about. 
And then all of a sudden there are these passages like the one that you read um, or saying, oh, she said something. One part says they talk about Aryans and non-Aryans that she had never heard that distinction before. And so for me, finding the diary, it was really kind of like a message in a bottle uh, of one generation talking to another. And I think it is very, very moving. It's not very long. Um, and uh, it is basically to my mother. Uh, and it just makes me think, rethink everything. I know when we came back to Czechoslovakia after the war, um, I was eight years old. Uh, we come back. I only remember that there were some pictures of my grandmothers, but I hadn't focused on grandparents at all. I knew that grandparents were old and that they died. I since have focused on the fact that my grandmother was 54 years old when she was killed in a concentration camp. So there are many parts to the story, but, the, but I really do think the message in the bottle and one generation talking to another, and it is in, in, in the end of the book. Oh, there's an extraordinary passage at the very end, April 22nd, 1942. Your grandmother says we're taken for departure and categorized for work. Now they're saying we'll be soon moved out, and that's why all the Jews are leaving by train to Cologne for registration. For me, it is not anything upsetting. On the contrary, it is calming me down because I see that for my dear child, M, that she would not have lived for anything pleasant. Tell us about M, the daughter who died a few years before, and why that was calming somehow to your grandmother at this moment of great fate. Well, M was my, my aunt, Manya, um, who uh, stayed in Czechoslovakia when we left. She had a kidney disease, uh, and uh, she and my mother, I know, my mother used to talk about her a lot. We're very close, these two sisters, but Manya died. And a lot of the... Uh, a part of the diary also talks about how she misses Manya M uh, and didn't really understand how and why she had died. And so I think that the way that you read that part is kind of finding something uh, that made her uh, accept the fact that Manya had died, that this would have been dreadful for her. Did learning about this Jewish heritage change yourself conception, your attitude toward justice or anything else? Um, I, I think it didn't, frankly, because as I said, I knew about, my father was a professor. Uh, I always uh, learned history and diplomatic history. And, and then, um, as I said, I learned all this in 96. And by then I had been teaching for a long time, doing a variety of different things in foreign policy was something that was my major uh, interest in every single way. I had worked on Capitol Hill for Ed Muskie. And so I had a point of view. Um, and I have to say, it didn't differentiate. That point of view was not different from what I might have thought if I had known I was a Jewish and that this had happened to everybody. Uh, because I thought that things that happened during World War II were so stunningly evil um, and that we never could allow something like that to happen again. And so uh, it didn't change the way I thought. And what it really, what happened to me was I just felt desperately sorry for my parents. Um, and, and that was my main feeling, that they had these horrible things, that, how hard it must have been for them to leave Czechoslovakia in the first place, um, then come back and find that everybody was dead 
um, and then come to the United States and want to start a new life um, out in Denver, Colorado, you know, that there was no, you know, people say to me, why didn't your parents tell you? I can only speculate that they felt that there was nothing we could do to change things and why burden us with some, with the tragedies when they actually knew that we all were thinking uh, appropriately about what had happened to everybody. Mel Schuster asks, or imagines rather, whether the four women on the pen could possibly represent the four matriarchs in the Jewish religion, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. And then we have several questioners asking about women role models for you. S.G. Lehman asks, who's a woman that influenced you as you rose through the ranks of the U.S. government? And one of our other questioners asks whether Golda Meir was a role model for you. That's yeah. from David Mack. Well, it's interesting because... Um, I did go to a women's college. I went to Wellesley. It was interesting because obviously most of the professors were women and they had a very large influence on me. Uh, the international relations professors, Margaret Ball and Alona Evans. Uh, but when I um, came out of college and started having, I didn't have a job, frankly, for a long time. Uh, but uh, in my political life, to a great extent, my role models were men. Um, I worked for Ed Muskie. I thought he was uh, fabulous in every way and a great politician. Um, and then uh, the other men that uh, were political figures, Walter Mondale and, um, and then Zbigniew Brzezinski, who'd been my professor. I obviously had read about Eleanor Roosevelt and, um, I, you know, people kidded the fact that Hillary was channeling Eleanor Roosevelt. But I was up in New York as a U.S. representative, so there was an awful lot in terms of Eleanor Roosevelt and what she had done on human rights and the way that she behaved and uh, all the things that she had to, to do um, in her life. So she was. Golda Meir is somebody, the truth is I never met her, but reading about her, really re remarkable woman um, and um, having such a, a vital job when she did. Um, and so I wish I had. Uh, I had, uh, but there were not really a lot of women role models. Um, and, and I think it was the relationships that I had with um, a lot of my women friends obviously made a difference. But the title of my book um, does, doesn't come from what is going on now because I wrote the book before. It comes from the single most famous statement I ever made is that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. And that came from a period where when I started, decided I was going to be a journalist, by the way, and was told that I, there was no job for me. And that's another story. But I then had twins prematurely uh, and uh, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I decided that I would go back to school and get a graduate degree. Um, and the people that were most critical of me that really made me very sad were other women who said, uh, why aren't you at home with your children? Um, uh, or why aren't you in the carpool line instead of uh, being in the library? Uh, and I think that it made me think how judgmental we are about each other. And that made me very sad. And then the other part that happened is that um, later when I actually was, um, I was uh, the senior foreign policy advisor to Geraldine Ferraro, who was the vice presidential candidate for Walter Mondale. And we'd be traveling all over the U.S. And 
I, I'll never forget this uh, discussion that I had or conversation with this woman who came up to me and said, how can she talk to Russians? I can't talk to a Russian. Well, nobody was asking this woman to talk to a Russian. And we have, women have a tendency of projecting our own sense of questioning who we are or inadequacy on other women. So um, I do think that there are issues about how we treat each other. Um, and so that's why I'm so encouraged now in terms of how women are supporting each other much more. Um, when I said it once um, in New Hampshire during the primary, it's very interesting because it totally got misinterpreted. I was on the stage with Hillary and I started the sentence, there's a special place and there was a ton of applause. By the way, it's the most famous thing I ever said. It ended up on a Starbucks cup. So <laughs> what happened was people started applauding and they didn't hear. I had turned to Hillary to say, and therefore you are going to the other place because of all the things you're doing for women. But it was immediately misinterpreted to say that women should vote for women. I would never say that because there certainly are women I would never vote for. So this is basically about women being supportive in terms of choices that we make and how we can help each other. Um, and if there's another woman in that room, uh, that helps because the men play off of each other and the women, there's nobody to, to have to say, as Madeline said. Fascinating to hear the second part of that quotation. Uh, and you just uh, made a point that you've made to the Wall Street Journal as well, which is you think that what you call the queen bee syndrome, the idea that women can be more critical of other women, is less prevalent today than it was when you made the comment. Why do you think it's less prevalent today? Well, I'll tell you, the reason I, I made it when I did was that it was a time when all of a sudden there was a sense we need one woman uh, in the C-suite or... Uh, you know, as the head of, of a group or, or vice uh, president of a group. There's, and there was only room for one woman. And so the Queen Bee Syndrome came up with, if there's only going to be one woman, it's going to be me and not you. And I think one of the reasons that it is uh, less prevalent now is because more women are in high-level posts. Uh, there are more um, recognition of what women bring uh, to various positions and frankly, how hard women work. Um, and so I think that uh, there is now, there are more opportunities and there's not that kind of, you know, it's only going to be me. But I, you know, what I find interesting is um, there are, some people ask me, would the world be better off if it were only run by women? And so to that, I say, if you think that you've forgotten high school, I think that what has to happen is to have men and women working together, because as I said earlier, we bring different ways of thinking and doing things uh, in order to solve problems. We're getting lots of questions from our friends about Vice President Biden's pledge to pick a woman as vice president. Etta Nynum asks, who do you see as the best choice for the VP position? Mel Schuster asks, for which role is Susan Rice better suited, Secretary of State or Vice President? Any reflections you'd like to make on women in the vice presidency would be well, great. Uh, I happen to have met most of the women that are on the list, and I'm definitely not going to say answer that question. But I'm very glad that uh, Vice President Biden has made clear that he was going to appoint a woman. Um, and as I mentioned, I did work for Geraldine Ferraro, and um, I think it's high time. I, you know, one of the things that is very interesting: the U.S. always thinks we have to be number one. There are many countries that have women presidents and women prime ministers. 
and we are behind the curve on this particular issue. And I do think that uh, it is very important to have uh, a representative. There, there are so many good women. There truly are. Um, and I think that it is important for uh, men and women to choose each other uh, to develop ways of running a country or a business or teaching or any number of different things. When a woman becomes vice president or president, what would you advise her about the shoals to avoid and the unusual challenges that she'll confront? Well, it's interesting. It goes back to, to one of the things that you asked me earlier. I really would say, don't be angry. I think uh, it's very important to, to be a problem solver um, and to try to find ways of unifying rather than uh, dividing, because what we've had now is um, a period of deliberate division making that I think has hurt the United States very badly. And so I think the team is going to have to be one that tries to find solutions to problems um, and tries to bring people together and tries to get to go back to one of the other uh, answers I gave to put themselves into the other person's shoes and to try to solve problems rather than creating them, uh, which is what we've been living with now a deliberate effort to divide people, uh, to pit one group of people against another. Um, and that is going to be a very, very big part of renewing the kind of America that uh, we would like to see. Do you think men will learn from a woman vice president or president, just as your male colleagues learn from you about how to perfect these traits? Um, I think... I'm hopeful. You know, people ask me if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I'm an optimist who worries a lot. So I would hope very much that people would see that uh, because it does make for a better uh, way of governing. And, and so much about governance is bringing people together and solving problems. And I think what really does bother me about what's happening now um, is the deliberate um, a, a really exacerbation of di their divisions in every society due to economics or technology or age or um, actually any number of different aspects. And you try, for me, uh, the best, the whole idea of governing is to try to solve problems and see others. And I would hope that that is what would happen and that it would not be run in a way of deliberately dividing people. You mentioned being an optimist who worried a lot, and you've recently been asked to describe yourself in six words. Why don't you tell us what those six words are? They begin with worried optimist. What are the other yeah, The worried optimist, problem solver, and grateful American. Um, and it does pretty much cover what I think about. You know, and the grateful American, um, and especially as we're talking about the Constitution and our system, I am a grateful American, and I'm an immigrant. Um, I came here when I was 11 years old in November, 1948, um, sailed by the Statue of Liberty. Um, I didn't become a citizen until I was between my sophomore and junior year at Wellesley. And I am a grateful American. And uh, it's very funny. The first person to call me when I was named Secretary of State was Henry Kissinger. And he said, Madeline, you have taken away my one characteristic uh, that makes me different from the other Secretaries of State, that I'm an immigrant. And I said, no, Henry, I actually don't have an accent. And then he, when he introduced me, he said, 
welcome to the fraternity, Madeline. And I said, it's not a fraternity anymore. So, um, but that uh, really of uh, being an immigrant, and by the way, um, in terms of the rule of law and constitution in the United States, one of my totally favorite things to do is to give people their naturalization certificates. And the first year I did it was July 4th, 2000 at Monticello. And I figured since I had Thomas Jefferson's job, I could do this. And so I hand this man his naturalization certificate and he walks away and I hear him saying, can you believe I'm a refugee and I just got my naturalization certificate from the secretary of state. And I said, I, I went and found him and I said to him, can you believe that a refugee is secretary of state? And I am a grateful American. You describe that naturalization ceremony so beautifully in the book, describing handing naturalization certificates to new citizens with all American names, Martinez, Kim, Yang, Thieu, Hassan. It's just, there's nothing more inspiring than a naturalization ceremony. And I must ask, because we're here at the National Constitution Center, why is the Constitution important to the success of the American government? And when you were Secretary of State, why did the Constitution distinguish us from other countries and how did it help ensure our success? Well, I do think that um, it is the basic law of the land um, and written uh, at a particularly difficult time, uh, expanded with various amendments. It's a, it's a document that, that breathes and is alive. You take an oath to the constitution um, and it is the basis of what you do. And, um, and I think the part that's very interesting is um, specifically, uh, and just to tell you how it comes into usage in national security, uh, and I teach about it a lot, and I make my students read the Constitution, but the first article of the Constitution is about the power of Congress. The second one is about the power of the executive branch, and the third, the judicial branch. What is interesting, if one reads the first and second um, articles together, they, um, they're sometimes called an invitation to struggle uh, because a lot of power is given to Congress um, through the Commerce Clause and a number of other aspects to it. And the president is the commander in chief. And so there are all kinds of questions that come up in terms of that invitation to struggle. And people in the executive branch actually uh, don't think that the War Powers Act is constitutional. There have been an awful lot of arguments about that. <clears throat> so um, when um, I would go up and testify as Secretary of State on that, and you would be asked a question about deploying troops or whatever was being discussed, you would say um, it's uh, in uh, pursuit of the War Powers Act, not in accordance with the uh, War Powers Act. You would never uh, admit that the War Powers Act uh, was actually something that you abided by, but it was very conscious of the responsibilities of reporting to Congress, um, the role of oversight in Congress. And in many ways, the Constitution was alive, is alive when you're in office, as you think about national security policy um, and, and where it goes. Such a powerful phrase, an invitation to struggle, exactly what the framers set in motion. This is a time when many of all perspectives are anxious about the future of America and the Constitution and the division between the military and civilian authorities. Uh, as you look ahead, will the Constitution save us? Well, I, I am counting on it to do that. <laughs> and, and I do think 
that that's why um, having it viewed as a living document and, and the rule of law is absolutely the essential aspect of a democracy. Um, one of the things in the book, previous book, my Fascism, A Warning book, um, I, by the way, fascism is not an ideology. It's a process of gaining power. And uh, it is deliberate division of society, of a leader who identifies himself with one group at the expense of another, um, you know, making them uh, the victims of it. And that's certainly what we saw um, through Mussolini and Hitler, um, you know. And I think that uh, it is important to understand also that the rule of law, a leader who abides by the rule of law is a very basic aspect of it. Understanding the role of the press. A free press is a basis of democracy. Um, and so there are various parts, and the Constitution is obviously central in so many ways, and how people see uh, how it is interpreted. And, and it is a living, it's fascinating when I think about it in terms of how often uh, you begin as a public servant by taking the oath with your hand on the Bible and the other one raised. And it is a very living aspect of, of being a public servant. And I think for those that want to make sure that our country evolves, uh, that there is a rule of law, the amending process is something that is also very much a part of it in terms of that's what makes it living, uh, is that in fact, there are various aspects in society. And so um, the 19th Amendment is very important. Here, here, thank you for that powerful affirmation of the importance of the rule of law and the Constitution. We're speaking the day after the Supreme Court, by a bipartisan majority, issued one of the most important anti-discrimination decisions protecting the rights of gay and lesbians in history. It was written by the chair of the National Constitution Center, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Uh, what does a decision like that, joined by justices of both parties, say to you? I, uh, you know, there have been a lot of commentary about it today. I think it's remarkable, and I think. It speaks to the strength of our country uh, and the capability of assessing uh, where we're going. I think it is really, really uh, obviously monumental in so many ways. Um, and I think a surprise to some people, uh, but I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion of it. It's going to have a lot of precedent in issues that we all are dealing with. Um, and especially, uh, I would like to say in the current atmosphere that is, a very difficult one in terms of a variety of issues that have to do with gender as well as race. And so I think it's very important, very telling. You're, you're so right about its significance and the importance of it for gender as well as race. The court construed the words because of sex in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to have their reasonable public meaning when they were adopted and extended it to protect gays and lesbians and transgender people and said that the arc of protection is always bending upward. Uh, maybe reflections, because we're talking about the 19th Amendment and the expansion of gender equality. Has the arc of gender equality been ever upward uh, over the past 100 years or has it been a bumpy ride? Well, I, th I think it's been a bumpy ride, but it is pointing in the right direction um, in so many ways. And it's kind of interesting to talk about um, you know, as I said, we, we aren't number one in having a woman president, but there are more and more women um, as a part of the government structure in a number of ways in terms of 
governors the other I guess it was last night I was listening to the mayors, the women mayors who are remarkable and the women that are in their state legislatures. Um, and then also, I think the number of women now in Congress, uh, and I think that that speaks well. It's obviously not finished and one has to keep working, which is why I think celebrating the 19th Amendment at this time is important. By the way, I have to, I, this is somewhat self-centered, but um, I was at the National Archives last year and they had begun celebrating the 19th Amendment. And all of a sudden I'm taken to this case and there is the letter that uh, was that President Clinton nominated with nominated me with, and I thought, you know, oh my God, I really am a part of American history, and nothing could make me prouder than to be a footnote in American history. Uh, but the Nineteenth Amendment, it was just great to be in that glass case, not literally, but the letter. <laughs> so, um, but I think there's still an awful lot to do, um, and which is why I think using an anniversary in a positive way to keep moving in uh, with the arc of history on this and recognizing always that there are bumpy times and that the uh, women working together with a lot of very good men um, is something that is very important and that we need to use this anniversary uh, in a positive way. Well, that's a wonderful story and all respond by saying if you would consider loaning us a, an artifact from your tenure to put in our 19th Amendment exhibit, that would be a great honor, and we would love to immortalize that great achievement, too. So we'll hit you up we'll for that after the show. That's great. Wonderful. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Kathy Heath says, there's so many books in your room. What books do you think are especially urgent for us to read? Well, this is my office, frankly. Um, and so um, there are a lot of books about um, a variety of other countries, but the ones that I think are really important to read are the ones uh, about American history. I really do think and fits very well in terms of the stories of the presidents and, and, um, and frankly, some of the aspects of how the Constitution is used. Uh, I do have a lot of books about the Soviet Union and Russia and a lot about Central and Eastern Europe, but I think the ones uh, that are really important is to be, un be able to understand uh, what has happened in American history. The other part that I think is something worth doing, and that is, uh, and this is self-centered to say this, is to read memoirs, because people, uh, the truth is that um, history is um, based on how people remember things that they did or on papers that were created and I think everybody does need to write their memoirs. What is interesting is how different they turn out to be. And so uh, uh, when I was teaching one year about what happened, how decisions were made over the hostage crisis during the Carter administration, um, all the participants had in fact written memoirs. And I made this chart about what were they trying to achieve? Who were the people in the government they were working with? Where did they get their information? Uh, who were adversaries, and how did they view the end product? And they were all different. It was fascinating in terms of how the participants looked at things differently, which is why I think it's important for scholars and people that like history is to read the memoirs um, to see how differently they uh, see, the, the players see what their role was uh, or wasn't. 
of your memoirs are so inspiring. And Hannah Shapiro says, we should all be very proud. You're part of American history. Lucky are the students who took your class and the people who worked with you. You were very inspiring. We have several questions about uh, gender equality and the ERA. Cheryl Glenn asks, Madam Secretary, what is your opinion regarding the ratification of the ERA? And Indira Feustel asks, when do you think we will see equality for women, equal pay or treatment? What are the unfinished agenda items that must be achieved? Well, I think the business about um, the final ratification is so complicated all of a sudden. And I do think um, that at the moment with a divided Congress, uh, it looks difficult. But I do think that uh, that it has to proceed. Um, and then what I think is, is very important, um, I think, is to keep pushing and thinking about the things that need to be done, because there is an awful lot of unfinished business. And there are uh, various, I think that there have been, gener and, and what I think this is fair to say, is that for a large part, there were younger women who thought that everything had been accomplished. And I got very nervous about the fact that things go backwards in a number of ways. Um, and we have to be very conscious of um, the fact that, that uh, there are tides against having women participate. Um, and, um, and sometimes by women. And so I think that one has to keep thinking that we need to be active um, and keep moving towards equal pay uh, and uh, being really respected and understood that um, you don't just have to have some, um, you know, quota for, you know, there need to be three women or whatever. Um, I think if we, if, if jobs are assigned on the basis or given, um, qualifications and hard work. Uh, there are an awful lot of uh, credible women. And I do think, again, it's important for women to help each other. Um, and what I've been surprised about, I have to say, if I, uh, and this is not supposed to be a diversion, but uh, I was born in Czechoslovakia. And what is interesting is Czechoslovakia was a democracy in the uh, period between World War I and World War II. And the first president of Czechoslovakia was a man called Thomas Masaryk, and he had an American wife. Uh, and what is interesting, just realize this, they were married in the last quarter of the 19th century, and he took her maiden name as his middle name. A little hard to, he married an American woman called Charlotte Gehrig, and his name was Thomas Gehrig Masaryk. And then the Czechoslovak constitution was based on the American constitution, uh, because Woodrow Wilson and the 14 points and self-determination. But there was one major difference when it came um, to uh, when it was ratified in 1920. It had equal rights for women in there in 1920. Well, I, I credit Charlotte Gehrig, though it may be something else, but it's really interesting that this small democracy in the middle of Central Europe had that in their constitution. Completely fascinating. Did it make a difference? And did that constitutional guarantee grant women equality in Czechoslovakia uh, earlier than other countries? Uh, I, I don't think so, frankly, uh, because it was a very complicated uh, situation and the, um, there were threats in a number of different aspects. But I do think it was interesting. And Thomas Gehrig Masaryk is one of the really remarkable figures and his American wife. So, But I do think it does mean the following thing, that just because something's written down doesn't mean it happens. 
Um, so it's important to get things in the Constitution, but it has to be a document that is alive uh, and is carried out. I also, um, you mentioned I was chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute. We are working also to get women um, into elected positions in other countries because we need partners. Um, and I found it very um, important to have other women foreign ministers when I was secretary. A, a crucially important point about the difference between the written document and the need to apply it in the hearts and minds of the people. And speaking of Czech heroes, you mentioned Maastricht, and of course there's Václav Havel, and the epigraph of your new book is from Havel and yeah. says the following, every wall and every door tells us that there's something on the other side of it. And thus they remind us that behind every other side, there's yet another side beyond that one. Indirectly they ask us what lies beyond the final beyond and thus broach the theme of the mystery of the universe and of being itself. At least I think they do. That's from leaving a play. Why did you choose that extremely moving epigraph? Well, it's very interesting. It's various things that I never thought would happen was that I would be friends with President Havel. And the thing that happened, um, I had uh, gone to Prague a number of times, but I was there in January 1990 um, as uh, from the National Democratic Institute. And um, I had a copy of a book that my father had written about 20th century Czechoslovakia. And the man that was foreign minister as somebody that I had met and I was sitting in my, uh, when I was a little girl, my father used to take me there. So all of a sudden I'm sitting there and this man that's now the foreign minister says, would you like to meet President Havel? And I said, of course. So we go over to the castle and I'm standing there and I'm giving him this book. And I, he said, oh, yes. You're Mrs. Fulbright. And I said, no, I'm Mrs. Albright. And that was the beginning of a friendship. Uh, but he was a fascinating person in so many different ways and um, didn't expect to be president. He was a dissident. I have just reread one of his really remarkable essays, The Power of the Powerless, which I think is something that bears reading because it really is about what people that um, the power of people that may look as though they don't have power, but are able either to live in truth or live in a lie. Um, but I do think it was interesting when, uh, one of the hard parts, frankly, is leaving office. Um, and even though he had been reluctant about being president, he decided to write this play about leaving. Um, and um, he talked about so many verities in terms of what happens when you leave. Um, and then you were asked to do a really, really important job, like being an assistant to an assistant deputy. Uh, but uh, what it's like to leave. And so you wonder what's going to be next. And that was certainly something that motivated him. Um, and it seemed quite germane to some of the things that I was thinking about. Well, it's absolutely inspiring. And you, as our questioners make clear, have inspired all of us with your leadership and your vision and your message of hope. Uh, so uh, because Constitution Center town halls must end on time with great sincerity, thank you so much for joining Secretary Albright. Friends, thank you all for joining and taking your time in the middle of the day to hear the secretary. Please buy her and read her wonderful book and let's all be inspired by her words of hope. Thanks so much, Secretary Albright. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed this and, and I will send something to uh, the center. Thank you very much. Thank you for being part of this. Bye, everyone. Thank you.
This program was made possible through the generous support of the John P. and Ann Welsh McNulty Foundation as part of the NCC's year-long celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. This episode was engineered by David Stotts, Kevin Kilborn, and Greg Sheckler, and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, and Tanea Tauber. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.